0: Let's go ahead and um, pray one more time before we, before we dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for yet another opportunity, Lord, to learn of you, to dive into your word, to consider, Lord, the sonship of God. I ask that you would be with us through your spirit, that you would enlighten our minds, growing us in the grace and knowledge of you uh, that we would be more sound in doctrine, that we would be in closer fellowship and communion with you and thereby communion with the Father. Father, would you be with us now and would your name be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to go ahead, we're going to continue the, the topic of the sonship of God. Um, just a brief recap, um, I put the the outline of sorts, I guess, on the board Um, Last week, we considered the Son in both Testaments. Uh, We did that in various ways, types, shadows, prophetic proclamations, actual appearances, if you remember. We then looked at uh, the Son's role in redemption, specifically as it's distinguished from the Father, right? And so then that's where we kind of looked over here at what the Father does, and really kind of drew this from Ephesians 1, about He's the one that elects, the one that predestines, the one that sends the Son, and so forth. And then we considered the Son's work, being the one who actually procures salvation. He completes the work that was given to him. Um, We understand that he was the covenant servant mediator because it was in his blood. And today we're going to touch on just briefly uh, the Son and the Spirit. We'll have a more in-depth study in the coming weeks by Pastor Lynn, but naturally as you're dealing with the Trinity, you're going to have a little bit of overlap. And so specifically related to the Son and the Spirit, um, I guess I'll write that over here because that's part of the outline. Um, I want to look specifically at the unity that they have. First and foremost, we see between the Son and Spirit an ontological unity, a unity in their essence, um, and we know this because they share the divine essence; they are co-equal. Yes. What does ontological mean? The ontological um, well, unity, or the. On- ontologically, it means in their essence, in their very being, they are one, they are unified. Um, yeah, their essence. Yeah, their divine essence. Uh, but we also see that they share the divine attributes. We see this specifically with something like Hebrews 9.14, where we see him referenced as the eternal spirit. That is a divine attribute that you see. Uh, we see uh, the divine attribute of omniscience, for example, in Psalm 139.7. Where it says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? <clears throat> in addition, we, we see that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets of old. Uh, specifically in this case, first 1 Peter 1.11, where Peter says, Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And finally we also understand that the spirit comes from both the father and the son proceeds from the father proceeds from the son. Uh, we see this in places like John 15:26 uh, where we would uh, read but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me. And then at the end of John 16:7 where he says, but if I go, I will send him to you. And so we clearly understand that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. But they also have a functional redemptive (laughs) unity um, between them in that that Christ did the work, but what does the Spirit do? What is their functional redemptive unity that they share? What does Scripture teach us on that? Well, first we understand that Christ was anointed with the Spirit. Right? We see him reference, for example, Isaiah 61.1 when he says, The Spirit of the, of the Lord God is upon me because, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then he says, this has been fulfilled in your presence. Right, So we see that he is anointed with the Spirit. We also see that the sending of His Spirit ultimately continues His mission and work. In a sense, it's an extension of the mission and work of the Son. For we see in John 16, 8, what does He do? It says, the Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Um, we also understand the Spirit uh, regenerates. So I'm actually not writing any notes for you guys. But, um, so he, we understand that He convicts. Um, he regenerates. That comes from Titus 3.5, for example. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, what we see is that ultimately the Spirit seals, right? He's our guarantee. He's our down payment um, for that day. Now, there are a plethora of verses, but Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Yes, go ahead. That's right, he instructs us, right? He enlightens our minds and and allows us to even understand the word and so forth. Any other comments or questions on that? No? Excuse me? He does, right? And he's even called the comforter, right? The next point we want to look at... Oh, yeah, go ahead.
1: work of Christ. Is it similar?
0: Well, as far as the sealing and then the intermediary work? Okay.
1: Like one, like they both essentially like preserve our salvation and see it through, right? But is there like a
0: distinguishing? Well, there's definitely a distinguishing, right? The Holy Spirit's the one who seals, and then Christ is the one who intercedes for us. And that's actually what we'll touch on when we consider um, this next section on the Son and fellowship with His people. There's, a, there's a, a number of things that we'll look at and how he's in fellowship with us, how he relates to us, if you will, um, and so forth. So we'll see if that section, when we get there, like addresses that a little bit more clearly. Uh, first, the Son is our Savior. So, uh, first of all, we have Son's uh, fellowship with uh, his people. And the first aspect that we're going to consider here... Is uh, the Son as our Savior. The Son is our Savior. In order to do this, whereas we consider the Son as our Savior, what we need to define, I guess, is like, what is salvation? We need to understand um, what He's done for us. So, what is salvation? How would you describe salvation? Yeah. Being saved from God's coming wrath. Okay, that's certainly an aspect of it. Okay. Go ahead, Greg. It is of the Lord, and you're. It's of Him. Um, it's of the Son for sure. But is it merely having our sins forgiven, and is it merely? being saved from his wrath. These are certainly two aspects of it, right? Um, um, we see throughout scripture that, that there is a saving from sin and there's a deliverance from the wrath to come as part of his mission. We see this um, particularly in places like first Thessalonians one 10, where he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we certainly understand that that's an aspect of it. Um, and we also understand that He was going to save us from our sins. If you remember, I mentioned last week that His very name means that. You shall call His name Jesus, because why? He will save His people from their sins. Um, John the Baptist's proclamation, when he saw Jesus coming to him, in, in John one twenty nine, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes who takes away the sin of the world. And finally, we see this in Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so we certainly see, make no mistake, we, we don't often say, oh, there's no forgiveness um, or there's, there's wrath to come. We understand he forgives our sin, he delivers us from the wrath. Um, and we can tend to think that these are the only two things that come from salvation. However, what is the culmination of salvation? What does it culminate in? Life? Life, that's right. In the sense that we even think of John where he says, he who has the Son has what? That's right. And he who does not have the Son does not have life, but more specifically will not see life. That's right. And so the culmination ultimately um, is in the fact that through the Son we have access to and communion with the Father. It's not just no punishment, sins are forgiven, but he actually brings us to the Father. Through him we can commune with the Father. We read in Ephesians two eighteen and 19, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so this goes along the line, Robert, with what you were thinking, what what we've drawn out previously when we've considered the changes or what we have in Christ, what he's done for us, the salvation he's wrought for us, um, what do we see? What do we see scripture describe for us when we consider Christ as our Savior? In the old, right, we were what? Dead? Right? Dead in our sin? And now we are alive to God? Right? Uh, We just consider the fact here that we were strangers and aliens. So we were alienated from God. We had no business or access to God. But in Christ, we can now go to the Father. Uh, We see um, Romans 8.17 where it is essentially um, we have no access, right? And now we have access um, to the Father. But... More specifically, Romans 8.17 describes that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Think of that. It's not just, oh, he died for us and forgives our sins, and, but we are actually, we, we are heirs, co-heirs. Romans 8.17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And finally, to consider the fact that through Christ, we will be in his presence for all of eternity. Now think of like in Isaiah 6, when you see the seraphim flying around and they have their eyes covered, their feet covered, they cannot look upon God. But what will we, what will we be doing for all of eternity? That's right. We won't be there with covered eyes and so forth, right? Because of Christ, we will be able to behold him for all of eternity. That's truly amazing. This is the work of Christ our Savior. Any uh, questions or comments? Any additions to that? This might be a weird or funny
1: question, but thinking of that, can Michael the Archangel or Gabriel or any one of the other angels actually look upon God?
0: I don't know. Um, I know that what we see is, in that particular case, the seraphim um, don't, um, but I'm not sure, <laughs> Pastor Emilia, you got anything on that? <laughs> I guess.
1: That is to say that we will have a privilege of being able to see God in such a way that angels can't. Visit.
0: Yeah, and I think what's key about that, right, is the fact that we were made in the image of God, and we're being conformed to the image of God. And therefore, um, you know, we will be able to, to behold him for all of eternity.
1: I think theologians make a distinction, Brian, between uh, God and his you know, ontological glory, It's mm. like a, a glory that is not mediated in any way. You know, I'm the only person of the Godhead whose glory is not gonna be mediated in any way in heaven is gonna be the son. sort of medi- mediatory uh, I guess you could say level to our beholding God mm-hmm. okay? and so we'll see the Son in all of His incarnate glory right. but no one will gaze upon the
0: ontological glory of God. right yeah, right yeah. <clears throat> the next uh, aspect of the Son's fellowship with us is uh, the Son uh, as our Lord You know, we consider Christ as our Savior, but we must certainly understand that without Christ as our Lord, there is no Christ as our Savior. These two go hand in hand. There's no such thing as non-Lordship salvation. Many of us probably understand that in this room, but make no mistake, you'll certainly encounter that aspect out in the world. They'll say, oh, he died for me, and he's my Savior. He's just not on the throne of my heart, or whatever the case may be. It's important to understand that in that case, they don't know even Christ as Savior. Mm-hmm. You cannot have one without the other. Mm-hmm. And we I, we see this... Yes, go ahead.
1: Just to put a note out there, usually when people say you don't need to repent, those are of the camp who are no worship. Because repentance is typically associated with Jesus being Lord, and
0: therefore obey <coughs> Him. And they're generally of the camp of no law, antinomian, right? It's all of grace, things of that nature. Um... But what we actually see throughout Scripture is this. Uh, we see him referred to as, as our Savior and as our Lord. But even in Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.2 and 2 Peter 3.18, we see those two combined, our Lord and Savior. Now, we can easily call him Lord, and we can readily assent to him uh, being our Lord, but at the same time, despite assenting to that and saying, yes, he's our Lord, we can also not completely comprehend the gravity of what's being said when we say that Christ is our Lord. And therefore, we must consider, what does Christ's fellowship with us uh, as Lord mean? What do you guys think it means that Christ as our Lord? Obedience? Obedience? We, don't, we no longer do the things we want to do, Right? Uh, we see this in a passage, really, uh, like First Corinthians chapter six. Uh, if you want to turn there, First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty. Uh, we understand that we are ultimately bought with a price. First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty. Anybody like to read that? Go ahead, Greg.
1: Yes. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? It is upon you, whom you have of God, and you are not of your own. For you are bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God your body and your spirit, for they are God's.
0: And that's right. So we are bought with a price, and therefore, what our life or our body is not our own. We're not to go on doing the things that we once did in the old man. There should be an absolute change um, in us. We're not free to do as, as we once pleased. Secondly, when by God's grace we have come to Christ, we must understand that there is a fundamental shift in who we serve. Uh, in other words, we have a different master. We no longer serve the w- ruler of this world. We no longer serve the desires of the flesh. Uh, rather, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you think of Christ as your Lord... What do you think of? What comes to your mind? Bond servant. Bond servant. That's right. And so, if you would turn to Romans six with me, Romans six, I believe, is the quintessential quintessential picture of this fundamental shift. Uh, if I were to summarize this chapter, which coincidentally, I actually checked the ESV, it's actually the hi- heading that they have for the chapter two, but the, the summary would be this. Dead to sin, alive in God. Or, no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. So make no mistake, even under the lordship of Christ, we are still slaves. That, that position doesn't go away. Uh, but our master has changed. And so let's look through a couple of the verses in this chapter that that really show this forth where we see that we're dead to sin, we're no longer slaves of sin, and who we are now a slave to or what we are a slave of. So verses 1 and 2. Who has those? Verses 1 and 2. Sure.
1: What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin
0: in That's right. Verses 6 and 7. Who has that? Okay. Keith.
1: Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Verses 11 through 13. Who has that? Go ahead. Okay, and finally, verses 17 through
1: 18. Sure. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were admitted. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness.
0: Right, and so in these, like I said, what we see is there's a shift, right? Before we, we were slaves to sin, we were enslaved to sin. We served a different master, But what we see change when we come to Christ, there's a true change. What happens to us? We now become obedient from what? From the heart. That's right. Before, maybe there's a trying to keep the law. Overall, I'm a relatively good person. I've done this, this, and this, right? But when you come to Christ, He is your Lord, and there's obedience that takes place from the heart so that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are now a slave to righteousness, And so we must recognize that our position doesn't change, but our master does. Our position doesn't change, but the outcome does. Um, Consider the oft-quoted verse, Romans 6.23. We read, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Consider the beginning of the verse, right? That under our former master, we had wages. Things that were actually due to us for what we did. Okay, And what is it that was due to us but death? For our service to those things, we would receive the wages of death. But under Christ, as our Lord, it's not wages that are recompensed to us. Instead, it is the free gift that we have from Jesus Christ our Lord, which is eternal life. That through Him, as our Savior, and as our Lord... There's nothing that we've done to earn that, so it truly is a free gift and is eternal life. Mm-hmm. Any comments, questions, additions, things I missed? You guys are quiet. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, we have to understand that when we assent to Him as Lord, there are demands made upon us. It's not that we just live as we want to live. There's nothing we have to obey and so forth. But there truly are still things that we do not to be saved, but as a result of what Christ has done. That
1: makes me think of Luke six forty six. Says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not
0: do That's good. The third way is uh, the Son uh, as our High Priest. The Son is our High Priest. In order to maybe more fully or more clearly understand uh, Christ as our High Priest, we just have to briefly kind of consider what the Old Testament, you know, taking a look at the Old Testament priests, the Old Testament sacrifices And what you'll see when we read on the pages of the Old Testament um, is that there were continual sacrifices being made. The one thing you will notice when you go through is it's this offering and that offering. Um, We were going through um, the Old Testament um, chronologically, right? And so you're going through and you get to these sections where it repeats the same sacrifices over and over and over. And so what you see is, a massive shedding of blood to take place or that was taking place. And then we consider the fact that these priests were beset or weighed down by their own sin, right? They were like us in that sense. Um, we see the fact that um, that that they had to first make atonement for their sins and then the sins of the people. Um, but what we see here too is also that on the Day of Atonement, they could do what? Does anybody remember what they did on the Day of Atonement, which was just once a year? That's right. So one day a year, they can go into the Holy of Holies. Um, but this isn't what we see with Christ. What well, we have to realize, when we consider Him in fellowship with His people, it's difficult to determine like, which is more important. Like When we look at these, right? it's like, well, how do we rank them? Thankfully, with Him, there's not a need to do that. He fulfills all of those. Uh, But we have to understand is that Christ as our high priest is absolutely essential. Uh, We can say this about the two other headings. If we don't have Christ as Savior, then our sins aren't forgiven, right, and so forth. But um, what we must understand is without Christ as our high priest, without him as our mediator, uh, we have no access to God. And so what we see with Christ is that he is first... Like the Old Testament priests, in some regard, except without sin, and so we see this in a place like Hebrews two seventeen. I'm actually gonna we see this in in Hebrews two seventeen, but um, I want to just write this down. He is our uh, sacrifice. Trying to make sure I Hebrews two seventeen says this. Therefore. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Secondly, uh, we understand that he is the true sacrifice. Um, While all the other sacrifices that were continually offered uh, could not accomplish the removal of sins, Christ both offered and accomplished once for all. Mm. Yes? I was just going to point out, in seven twenty three. 23, I, I like how it states it here, that mm. the former
1: priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented mm. by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession.
0: Yeah, that's good. That aspect of that continual priesthood, there's no fear of it not, or of it ending, not continuing, right? Uh, there's no fear uh, that our status will ever change, that the sacrifice will not be good enough, that the mediation will not be good enough. Um, but so he offered this sacrifice and accomplished uh, the true removal of sins once and for all. We see in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, if you guys want to turn there, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. Anybody would like to read that? that? That's there. Go ahead, Chris.
1: But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all. Holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal
0: redemption. Mm. And then Hebrews ten fourteen. If somebody wants to grab that, sure.
1: So by a single offering, He has perfected all those who are being sanctified.
0: So what we see is ultimately there's an efficacy to the work, right? It accomplishes uh, the purpose for which. Um, it was intending to do. The blood of bulls and goats offered by the high priests who also sinned themselves could not take away sins. But the blood of Christ, our great true high priest, offered once and for all has eternally secured us. They had to keep offering sacrifices, right? Now there is no more sacrifice to be offered. We are eternally secure. He has brought forth an eternal redemption. And finally, what we see is he resides in the true holy of holies. If we remember, these Old Testament priests, right, entered once a year. But Christ, as our high priest, resides in the true holy of holies. Uh, We see that in what we just uh, read, that he entered once and for all into the holy places. And then we also read in Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So they would enter once a year, right? But our high priest resides there um, to appear on our behalf before God. What we also see is that he is our high priestly intercessor. Christ is our high priestly intercessor. Christ did not just stop with being a sacrifice for us, right? And and, and allowing us to have removal of sin, right? And no wrath. But think of this. He intercedes for us. He takes up our cause in the presence of God. We read 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So I went ahead, I looked up, did a a dictionary definition of advocate. And it says this, An advocate is one who pleads the cause of another, or more specifically, one who pleads the cause of another before a tribunal or judicial court. And that's what we understand. What we had was a a judicial court before God. We were legally guilty before him. We have been made righteous through the blood of Christ, right? And now, before that throne, we have one that ever pleads our cause. So he willingly sacrificed himself for us, and now he willingly pleads for us. Paul says in Romans eight thirty three through thirty four, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to con- who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, if charges and accusations come, right, ultimately we know we have won before the throne of grace who intercedes for us and takes up our cause. And this pleading and intercession on our behalf is continual, like Robert just said. There's no end to it. Um, He referenced the verse about, he is able to save those in Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. He's able to save those to the uttermost. There's nothing that's left that needs to be done. It's to the uttermost that we are saved. Those who draw near to God through him And he always lives to make intercession for them. And finally, he is our high priestly access. Our high priestly access. What we must remember is that without a high priest or mediator, there is no access to the Father, right? But in Him, we have unfettered access. We can go whenever we want, right? Um, and, and pray and cry out to Him. Uh, let's look at two more verses from Hebrews. First, Hebrews 4, 14-16, if somebody wants to grab that. we can have confidence to draw near because of what Christ has done. We need not fear. We don't have a high priest who is far off, who cannot sympathize with us. He's not, you know, in heaven, unable to understand the things that we go through. Uh, But he too was in a body of flesh. He too suffered. Um, And so he is able to sympathize with us and and to help in our time of need. Hebrews ten, nineteen through twenty two. Who's got that Hebrews ten, nineteen through twenty two? Pastor Lynn.
1: Faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience with our bodies
0: washed with pure water.: So we see similar language here that we can draw near uh, with boldness and full assurance that we need not have any uncertainty. Um, and these are the things that Christ has wrought for us through his high priestly work. He was our sacrifice, uh, He's our intercessor. And finally, through him, he is our access. And so the final question that remains as far as this section goes is how often do we take advantage of this? How often do we take advantage of going to him and uh, crying out to him in prayer, boldly approaching the throne of grace? Um, I'm ashamed to say, I I mean, it's not often, right? Or Or it's very sporadic or it's here or there. We try to fit it in. But think about this. We have access to God at any point during the day, at any time. And yet, instead of going to him, what we will tend to do is often rely on our own strength, our own thoughts, or take worldly counsel when ultimately we can go to him and he will intercede for us and he will uh, take our cause before the Father. Any additional comments on that section? Mm. Like that. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll battle with thinking, well, what what good is it going to do? And that's, so, mm. that's such an unbelieving mindset, right? That, mm. you know, what good is it going to do? And then I'm reminded of the verses of the prayer of the righteous man that baileth much. Mm. So if I don't believe that, then you, you know to I mean? yeah. So just going to him
1: by faith. And the Charles Spurgeon has a really good, there's a free thing on YouTube that you can listen to called Pleading with God in Prayer. Mm.
0: Mm. and it's crazy right how hard it can be for us sometimes to like get into prayer like the 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 things of the world the work the family right all the stresses of life like the minute we're fine the minute we go to get into prayer right it's like all of a sudden all those things are like dumped on us and we can't clear our mind we can't focus but i think you know if I even say this to myself. I mean, it's like if we would stop and think what we truly have access to. Mm -hmm. Like we have, imagine that we were in the presence of God, right? And that's where we'll be for all of eternity. It's like we wouldn't even care about the things of this world and the stresses and the trials and the difficulties. And I think if we truly had the proper view of God, we would know that's where we should go. That's where we should flee to before we cry out to a friend or before uh, we try in our own strength to... Uh, tackle whatever challenge it may be. Okay, the uh, final point as far as the Son's fellowship with His people is uh, the Son as our uh, example. So thus far, we've looked at our at the Son as our Savior, as our Lord, and our High Priest. But we must also understand that he, is, he has left us an example to follow. We certainly see the principle of imitation taught throughout the Scriptures um, in that we are to imitate one another. Paul even says himself, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, but we also read in 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so it's good to Imitate each other, but more importantly, we are to imitate Christ. We are to walk as He walked. There's the benefits of imitating each other because we understand that all of us are beset with various difficulties and sin and so forth. But ultimately, Christ is our perfect example. So, for our purposes now, I want to briefly consider four different examples. There are many, there are things that maybe you guys will end up bringing to the table as well. But the first thing is, I'm going to um, just erase this. First, Christ exemplified, number one, a life of prayer. And um, we just talked about this as far as boldly going before the throne of grace, but he exemplified a life of prayer. Um, we read in Hebrews 5:7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. One of the things to note here is, that while he was in the flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications, not just in trials and suffering or not just in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he truly uh, led um, through the whole of his life a life of prayer. Consider the fact that Christ was very busy. People were continually making demands, requests, uh, feed me, um, you know. um, But what do we see him do? Well, what we don't see is him making excuses for why he can't get away to pray. Um, but rather, we see him make time. Um, we read in Mark five fifteen through 16, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Uh, but, he would, uh, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. There was, always, there was always something for him to do. There was always things that people wanted him to do. But the thing that he knew he must do was get away to pray. Again, in Matthew 14, 23, we read, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. <clears throat> and he made time in various ways, right? First, we read Mark one thirty five, And rising very early in the morning... While it was still dark, he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So he did it at morning, right? And then we see in Luke 6.12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So he made sure that what was absolutely essential was him communing with his Father through prayer. And if Christ, as the Son of God, needed that, how much more so do we? He truly gave us an example um, to follow, uh, not merely to fit prayer in, but to have it be a true priority to us. Any comments, questions? We looked at this last week, and so this will be brief, or we we considered it um, last week, but he led a life of obedience And this was absolutely necessary for us to be saved, for sure. Um, uh, His obedience that we saw, he always did the things that were pleasing to the Father. He did it without grumbling, without complaining, without begrudging thoughts, right? We looked at his obedience in the incarnation and laying aside what was rightfully his in order to save those who were his enemies. Uh, Think about his death and his submission to the Father despite knowing what it fully meant to undergo the wrath of God. Fully knowing what he would suffer, he still obeyed. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we obey like this? And now we're not going to obey like that perfectly. I think that's very clear, right? But do we have a desire? Do we grumble and complain? Do we love the law of God? Do we love his commandments? It says if, if we love him, we will keep his commandments, is what Christ says. Thirdly, he lived a life of service and humility. life of service and humility. He exemplified this and set forth a pattern that were to follow. We read in John 13:15. After Christ washes his disciples' feet, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. And this is truly an amazing picture. Well, what we know is that wealthy Jewish homes, prominent Jewish homes, right, would generally have a slave that was positioned by the door, that when guests came, they loosened the straps of the sandals and they washed their guests' feet. And yet what we see here uh, in humility service and setting the example for how we are to serve one another, Christ washes his disciples' feet. The Lord of all washes the feet of his disciples. In other words, there is nothing that we should not be willing to do for one another out of love and service to Christ. However, that's not all. So often, what we can tend to do is think highly of ourselves um, and to think that we deserve to be served rather than to serve. And so we get been out of shape when somebody looks at us the wrong way or somebody doesn't say hi to us or somebody doesn't acknowledge us the way we think we should be acknowledged right and next thing you know we're like angry right like (laughs) um but knowing this we're in fact dealing with this in the philippian church this is what paul says in philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. So what do we see here? Well, they're to put aside selfish ambition, right? Um, uh, They're to consider others more important or more significant than themselves. But who was the ultimate example of how to do this? Christ. He says, have the mind of Christ. And so I ask you, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? To think like him? So how did he exemplify that specifically? Like, what was his mind? Wise. wise? Okay. What's that? Well, We want our minds pure, for sure. But in this context, that's right. He was selfless. He was the one who could truly claim all things, right? He could truly claim he deserves glory, he deserves praise, right? But did he do that? No. No, we see instead what he did was, when he was the tr- one who could truly do that, he laid those things aside and came in the form of a servant and in the likeness of human flesh. We think we have claims to be made. We think we have things that are due to us, right? And things that we deserve. The only thing we truly deserve is the wrath of God. So Christ freely and willingly gave himself for us. Should we not willingly give ourselves for one another? And the last point um, uh, that we'll touch on today is he lived a life of suffering. He lived a life of suffering. He exemplified how to live a life of suffering to the glory of God. We read throughout the pages of Scripture that we will suffer and go through trials and tribulations. I think that is no surprise to us, and I'm sure as I even say this, you have all the different verses going through your mind. James 1.2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials are a certainty. It's, they're going to happen. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Thankfully, the persecution we face here like, is not like what we see in other countries. Usually it's people getting mad at us, throwing stuff at us. Um, but I have a hard time thinking that that type of persecution is not coming here eventually. Christ himself said in John fifteen twenty, Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Consider 1 Peter 2:21 and 23 if you want to go ahead and turn there. 2:21 through 23. First in verse 21 we read this, for to for to this you have been called because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. What is the, to this you have been called? That's right. And that's what we see in the previous verse, right? Um, For what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. We have been called to a life of suffering. That was the life that Christ himself experienced. But he left us an example of how to suffer well. What do we see? um, How do we see him responding when he suffered? Well, in verses 22 and 23, we read this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept or continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see the example set forth Here for us is that when he was reviled he didn't revile back when threatened he didn't threaten when hit he didn't hit back when mocked he didn't mock back right how often do we encounter people who threaten us treat us badly say something about us that we don't like and we respond in kind christ set for us a different example we are bound to face all types of sufferings and trials But the writer of Hebrews, as an exhortation not to grow weary, says this in Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Think about that, is that he endured all that hostility, all the things, the beatings, the mockings, the hanging on the cross, and so forth, right, from sinners. He is our example. If he went through it, right, he gives us the strength to grow through it, there's no need for us to be weary or faint-hearted, faint-hearted. And finally, I'll close this section with 1 Peter 1 He says this therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is ultimately our hope, right? That though we endure trials, though we endure hardships and, and challenges and persecution, No, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, with that, we can go to worship. But um, are there any other questions or comments, thoughts, verses? Okay, let's go worship.